Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us. We got a lot of exciting things going on right now. This past week, I saw that our women's Bible study were meeting again on our campus. Our midweek has started up again for our youth, kids' churches back, our, our reaching higher program that's going strong. Big wins, exciting stuff. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty happy that football is back. And I'm really happy that my bills are 1-0, and and I'll be even happier when they're 2-0 and today. You know, so much of the allure of sports is the euphoria of victory, right? The, the joy of victory, even if it's vicarious. Just that joy of sharing in the victory, it's enticing. Well, today, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalms of Victory. We're in a sermon series called Songs for the Seasons that is focused on the Psalms. Every week, we have been sending out a reading plan through our TCC weekly email. I hope that you've been reading that and following along with us. If you don't receive the TCC weekly, please contact the church office and we would be more than happy to get you connected. So in that reading plan, I put together a playlist of a couple of Psalms of Victory. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 44. So if you have Bibles, open them up or you can turn to your Bibles app. Here's what it says. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors with scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The peoples shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame. At the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge, all this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it, since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Kind of an interesting psalm. 
It starts out as a a psalm of victory. God crushed our enemies. He drove out the nations. He trampled our foes. But then it sort of morphs into a lament. Now we're scattered by our enemies, derided by the nations, plundered by our foes. And then finally, it, it turns into a plea. Rise up, wake up. Help us do something. So the framework of the psalm is, this is what you did in the past. That's who we believe you are. But this is what is happening. And so we're asking for help. They heard that God crushes their enemies, drives out the nations, brings victory. But that's not what they're seeing. They read that God rescues and delivers them. But that's not what they're experiencing. They're not experiencing what what David experiences in places like Psalm 18. David says in Psalm 18, uh, beginning in verse 37, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as windblown dust. I trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. So it's like Psalm 44 is reading Psalm 18 and going, yeah, I like some of that. Because that's not our experience in Psalm 44 land. We're not seeing our enemies crushed. And David says this in Psalm 18, verse 4. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Psalm 44 isn't seeing that. They're not seeing rescue. They're not seeing deliverance. Why aren't they? Why aren't they seeing the power of God poured out? Why aren't they seeing huge battles won? Why aren't they seeing God deliver victory? Because it it does all come down to God. Both Psalm 44 and Psalm 18 agree with that. Psalm 44, verse 6. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. Psalm 18, beginning in verse 32. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. 
He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield, and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. You provided a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. It's all on God. It's not man's strength. It's not man's ability. It's not man's tactical genius. Victory is all from God. So why aren't they seeing victory in Psalm 44 that David sees in Psalm 18? Is it because they're not as righteous as David? I mean, David was pretty righteous. He was called a man after God's own heart. And David says this about himself in Psalm 18. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Okay, so maybe that's just it. David saw victory because he was righteous and the others are not. Well, okay, but that's not what they think in Psalm 44. They say this, All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. They seem to think they're doing everything right, like David. But, but here's the thing. Righteous living will go better for you than unrighteous living, at least generally. You know, there are pragmatic benefits to righteousness for the, for the here and the now. But if victory is dependent on our righteousness, then we're in trouble. The Bible is really clear here. There is no one who is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David was a man after God's own heart, yeah. He was also an adulterer and a murderer. That's who David was. And I'm really skeptical of the claim here in Psalm 44 because in the history of the Israelites, you don't see a whole lot of righteous living. They're constantly straying, constantly worshiping other gods, constantly forgetting God's covenant. So I'm pretty skeptical about their claims. But what David is pointing us to is that there is an intractable connection between victory and righteousness. And as God reveals himself more and more to us, we see that it's not our righteousness, but God's righteousness that brings victory. That's Jesus's righteousness is transposed to us by his atoning work on the cross. So that when we believe in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness and all the victory that comes with it. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, since we through faith have received the righteousness of God, what is our expectation for victory? Are we looking for victory? Are we expecting victory? Are we living in expectation that God's power is going to be displayed in amazing ways? Look what David says of God in Psalm 18, verse 7. The earth trembled and quaked, 
and the foundations of the mountain shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. Are we expecting to see stuff like that? That kind of power on display. Do we expect to see God win battles here at TCC? To win battles in our community? To win battles in our nation? Do we expect that? And what happens if he doesn't? What if our experience is more like Psalm 44 than Psalm 18? Because I think that's a reality for people where they have heard that God does one things. They've heard that he works miracles. They've heard that he defeats enemies. They've heard that he rescues. But they're not seeing it. Do we expect victory? Well, that can be dangerous. Our expectations can lead to disappointment or a crisis of faith. And so I I think oftentimes we try to mitigate against that by lowering our expectations, either in the micro or in the macro. So we'll say, I prayed and I got a great parking spot. Oh man, is God a deliverer or what? Put that one in the wind column. Or it's, I I prayed and the weather was nice. I mean, God is just slaying enemies today. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think celebrating the small stuff and being grateful to God in all things is good. But sometimes it can feel like there's a disconnect where people are all like, man, I see God powerfully winning massive battles every single day. And I'm just like, cool. You know, like half of our state's on fire, right? That's an enemy that could use some crushing. We've been dealing with a pandemic for what? Eight months and counting? People have lost jobs, lost businesses. Harmed retirement, students are struggling, suicide is up, domestic abuse is up, and people have died. That's an enemy that could stand to be crushed. We have riots and looting and racism and slander, and that's an enemy I'd like to see crushed. And meanwhile, the church in North America continues its rapid decline. I don't doubt that you've seen God move. I've seen God move. But I think we can all relate to Psalm 44 where we're just looking around and we're just going, God, wake up, do something, help. You know, Dr. Thomas at Biola was fond of saying, I think that's a really good prayer, help. But rather than face that, I think at times we have a desire to want to protect God. And so we lower the bar and just focus on the micro, you know, things that God can manage. Or we'll go macro. 
We'll say, Jesus won the victory over sin and death. The war is over, it's won, so we don't need to win any battle ever again. The only enemy that mattered was defeated 2,000 years ago. And that's kind of my bent. You know, seeing God in the small things is good, and seeing God in the big picture is good too. But I also think that that can become an expression of a lack of faith, lowering the expectations for victory. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where we don't expect God to act and so he doesn't because we do know that faith and the active power of God are linked. In Mark and Matthew and places like that, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, it says this, and Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So faith is connected to his power being displayed, at least in some instances. You know, I was talking to my dad when we were out in Idaho, and he's a pastor and missionary in Japan, and he was relaying how one of the Japanese church members would walk around in the neighborhood where the church was, and he would specifically pray over a little shrine in the area. He would just constantly pray, oh, God, get rid of this. God, tear this down. And when did you know it? Some new construction came in, and the shrine just had to go. And my dad was saying, you know, you know, I don't even think that occurred to me to pray like that. And that's sort of my bent too. We're we're not asking God to win this battle because he's already won the war. Hold no expectation that he's going to stop the fires or end COVID because he's already won the war. But the fact that God has already won the war should not give us a spirit of timidity. Quite the opposite. It should give us a spirit of boldness. You know, I, I'm in a pick'em league for football with my family. And last season, I won the whole thing. But this season, I stumbled out of the gate. Everyone else won their picks, but I lost. And they let me know it. Smack talking. They're terrible people. You know, they're just big talkers once the games are over. But I was thinking, shouldn't that be true of us? Not that we should be terrible people, but Christians, shouldn't we walk around with a little bit of a swagger? Because it's over. It's done. We have victory in Jesus. We are more than conquerors. So let's be big. Let's be bold because we're playing with house money anyway. The war is over. We can't lose. Now let's not use the macro view as an excuse to protect God from failure because we don't expect victory. So what should our response be? Now, I think we have a perfect response in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown in the fiery furnace for not worshiping a foreign god. And it says this in Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God can bring a victory. God will bring a victory. And even if he doesn't. I think most Christians are good with two of those statements, but not all three. Some are good with can and will, but don't like the waffling. Others are good with can and may not, but don't want to say that he will. I'm more in that camp because I really don't want to put words into the mouth of God that he didn't utter. That takes you bad places. God doesn't like that. In Jeremiah, false prophets were doing that, and it says this, Therefore, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. 
Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare, the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you out of my presence along with the city I gave to you and your ancestors. I will bring on you everlasting disgrace, everlasting shame that will not be forgotten. We don't want to put words in the mouth of God. We don't want to be like these prophets who are saying, oh, God is going to rescue us. God is going to win the battle. God is going to deliver a major victory for us. And God says, yeah, I'm going to show up. I'm going to display my power. I'm going to get the victory. I'm going to win the battle, just not in the way that you think. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at this point in time is a victory for God. He ordained it. He predicted it. He brought it to pass. That's a victory. God kept his word. That's a victory. He won that battle. And it does lead his people to repentance and contrition. But here's the thing. Even Jeremiah doesn't want God to win that particular battle. He didn't want that victory. He laments it. It breaks his heart. He prays against it. And we need to see that. God can, God will, and even if he doesn't. One way or another, God was going to get the victory. God was going to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if it's not in the way that they thought or hoped for. Or prayed for. The Christian life is expecting victory and always surrendering. God can. God will. And even if he doesn't. In Jeremiah, God says this. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. God is going to get the victory whether we want it or not. Whether we like it or not. We can try fighting it. We can try running from it. Or we can surrender to it. As is so common in God's upside down kingdom, victory in Christianity is surrender. Surrender to our conquering king who conquered our sin, who conquered our death. Surrender of our lives. Surrender of our wills. Surrender leading to victory. Aligning ourselves with righteousness because that's where victory is found. The Christian life is expecting victory and always surrendering. He can. He will. And even if he doesn't. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.